everybody, and welcome to the Years of Lead Pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and if you've been listening to this podcast for a little while, you know that the Brigate Rosse, the Red Brigades, really turned a corner in January 1979. The prior year had not exactly been bloodless. They committed some 23 attacks around the country, killing around nine people in total, mostly people involved in the penal system like cops, magistrates, and Aldo Moro's escort, along with the venerable politician himself. The furious pace was predicated by the Spring Campaign, an attempt to position the Red Brigades in a seat of power in relation to the state by kidnapping the Christian Democrats' most senior politician. But after the killing of Moro, the Spring Campaign was deemed victorious, and their attacks became more focused on prison guards and cops. It was this sort of devolution of their strategic goals, matched with the continuing disputes over the killing of Moro, that started boiling over even before the killing of Communist Trade Union Delegate Guido Rosa in January of 1979. But that killing, which hadn't really been part of the plan, but was carried out on the spot by Genoa Column member Ricardo Dura increased the fractures within the Red Brigades. For a while, the dispute had fallen on what was termed the military line with what was termed the political line. Those contradictions were embodied in the figures of Mario Moretti and Renato Curcio. So whereas Curcio had a kind of romantic flair for puffed-up revolutionary decrees and the sort of vagabond partisan renegade who put political form ahead of other considerations, Moretti was more of a technician, a meticulous planner, and I would say kind of a more rigorous ideologist. With Curcio in jail, Moretti's military line, which put forward a strict hierarchical organization with a capital O, and more top-down management through which the organization could determine and intimidate or destroy targets, it's the predominant one and the one that led to the decision to assassinate Aldo Moro. The dissenters within the brigades outside of prison were Valerio Morucci and Adriana Ferranda, who had entered the organization from Rome and the armed groups around the circles that had been involved in the extra-parliamentary group Potere Operaio after its dissolution in 1973. So Marucci and Ferranda, they put themselves forward as movementists, more or less on the side of the political line. They argued vehemently against the killing of Moro, and in its wake, Marucci sent a letter to Curcio and the other members of the historic nucleus still behind bars, imploring them to intervene in a leadership capacity. So you have the political line, the military line, and the movementists who are trying to side with the political line or at least get the political line to side with them and weigh in against the leadership of Morucci. When Guido Rosa was killed, taken away from his daughter and wife by a seemingly random act of cruelty or arrogance or incompetence, the screw turned even further for Morucci and Ferranda. The latter later stated, quote, That killing was another very hard cause for confrontation. 
In the flyer claiming responsibility for an action carried out in Rome, we criticized what we still believe to be an error by the comrades of the Genoese column. It was the first time that an internal controversy had been made public, and we were heavily reprimanded for it. So now you have the Roman column actually issuing communiques in opposition to something carried out by the Genoa column. So there's dissension within the ranks for Moretti, and he's trying to hold the whole hierarchical organization together. Meanwhile, as for Ferranda, she called the military line the line of annihilation and stated, murder became, let's say, the normal, in quotation marks, way of operating the Red Brigades. Now, it is true that the Red Brigades were breaking out into unprecedented violence. The 24 attacks of 1978 were higher than the year prior, which had been their biggest, busiest year up to that point, and 1979 is going to keep that pace. For a group that's going around kneecapping and murdering, seemingly at will, internal disturbance isn't treated very well. Prospero Gallinari, the child of a peasant family in Emilio-Romagna who moved north to join the Red Brigades during their formative years in the early 70s, and probably was the guy who pulled the trigger in the Moro execution, later explained, quote, Morucci and Ferranda ask for a general rediscussion of the line of the Red Brigades. They fear militarist tendencies and isolation from the movements. They suggest a step back in combat and a policy of managing accumulated force in closer relationship with the old and new subjectivities of workers' autonomy. It is, in fact, a basic alternative to the line taken by the organization after the conclusion of the moral kidnapping, an alternative that fails to become a constructive element of debate due to a series of mutual misunderstandings, but above all due to the conviction rooted in the leadership group of the Red Brigades and in a vast majority of the Roman column that with the spring campaign definitively ended the reversible phase of armed propaganda. If the point of BR actions going into Curcio's arrest in 1975 had been to spread the political position of the organization and propagate revolutionary sentiment among the masses, the Moretti-led BR simply wanted to hit the targets either most directly inconvenient to them or most emblematic of the political enemy. There wasn't a whole lot of symbolic stuff about murdering prison guards or cops. It was just a new form of warfare to them. As this dispute is taking place, between the autumn of 1978 and the following summer, a real discourse is going on in Asinara prison, where the historic nucleus is kept. There are different versions of what happened, but the historic nucleus would later claim to have been put off by the whole Moro killing, and they believe that a transition to civil war was now taking place, something that the brigades weren't necessarily ready for, and they wanted to propose different ways of mounting the guerrilla struggle. But they're just beginning to articulate their ideas. More broadly, the faltering government of national solidarity that had lasted since the kidnapping of Aldo Moro with the Communist Party acting in a non-objecting role was finally starting to show signs of collapse. The communists had not managed to gain much from the so-called National Solidarity government under Giulio Andreotti, and stories about the prime minister's alleged financial corruption were beginning to emerge. So the Pecce, the, the 
Communist Party is going back into the opposition, and a new government is going to have to be formed. While these shifts are beginning to emerge, Faranda and Moruchi live in a tiny apartment with a dark brown 1970s carpet in the Viale Giorgio Savin area of Rome. The two constantly go back and forth about leaving the Red Brigades. Valerio is stubborn and resistant, but he really wants to go as much as Adriana does. Adriana is insistent and wants to write out a declaration on their reasons for leaving. In February 1979, they get the call that they're being moved to the mountain safe house in Moyano, where column meetings were held. With no confidence in what will be demanded of them, what will happen there, or anything, they take this as their opportunity. Gallinari's going to be there at any moment to pick them up and take them to Bruno Seghetti, who's going to drive them to the house. They just take everything they can that's in their current apartment. Weapons, including pistols and the notorious Scorpion machine gun, documents, fake identity cards, fake license plates, and 20 million lire from an earlier kidnapping. And they pack it up. Adriana grabs talcum powder, puts it in a spray bottle, and quickly writes on the brown carpet, no to police detention. So they flee. Adriana Faranda later stated, quote, I had the ability and the good fortune to escape. I don't know what would have become of me today if I hadn't found sufficient energy. Just being part of an armed organization changes people. Individual identity is lost to assume that all-encompassing collective identity, which at a distance ends up deforming one's way of being and reasoning. Maybe I owe to my anarchist spirit both the escape at the time and many years later the will to disassociate myself, to break the ideological cages and stereotyped behaviors. Now Gabriela and Enrico, the two crash at a house of a random journalist who doesn't understand who they are. And with the support of their former friends from Potero Parayo, Franco Piperno and Lanfranco Pace, they hook up with a landlady named Giuliana Conforto in Viale Giulio Cesare 47. Conforto has no clue who they are. To her, they're just Gabriela and Enrico, friends of Franco's. But she's also an autonomia sympathizer, and she rents a room to them, while she sleeps in her own room with her two daughters when they aren't down in Calabria at the university where Piperno works. While there, the two lay low because they're being hunted by the Red Brigades and law enforcement. They make contact with what they call the territorial movement, generally a term for autonomia movements of a certain tendency, and with old friends from previous groups and connections. So together with these old friends who had been formed up with the brigades and now departed with the movementists, they form a new group called the Revolutionary Communist Movement. There are lots of meetings now, more guns coming in, all the fake documents that they've taken from the BR, and things are starting to move forward again. Piperno and our buddy Pace meet up with the pair in Rome, and they even go out to dinner together. Adriana cuts her hair short for the first time, and the couple even go to the movies. And They're, they're kind of trying to reestablish their independence to a degree. A month before they're arrested... I met Adriana at Villa Pamphile. I remember it was a sunny day, even though she was wearing 
a light raincoat, Lanfranco Pace later said. She had short hair. She was gloomy. I found her ugly. She had lost the absolute clarity that had dazzled me. We chatted as friends. She vented, told me she couldn't take it anymore to continue that life. That armed struggle had now become a nightmare to her, that perhaps she had done everything wrong, that at that moment the only thing she wanted was to be with her daughter. I've never seen her like this, but she didn't change course, as usual, for moral reasons. Or, rather, for her way of understanding morality, like coherence with one's own ideas. Whatever the cost, without tolerance for oneself, more for these reasons than for political reasons. After all, even joining the armed struggle three years earlier had been for her more a moral choice than the result of a political analysis. So that's Lanfranco Pace's interpretation. I don't know how real it is. For the Red Brigades, however, the two had really crossed a very bright line. Not only had they escaped the cult, but they stole a lot of stuff. In Gallinari's later reflections, he shows more circumspection than he did in those days. Quote, Within the organization, Morucci and Faranda began to become foreign bodies. Our even too vaunted geometric power intends to go it alone, in the proud and stubborn awareness that once started an armed struggle path must be fully verified, especially if apparently confirmed by the general progress of the fight in the country. Thus, as often happens when absolute assessments take the upper hand in a confrontation, which is also a political clash and which takes place, among other things, in the particular context of a fighting organization, the dialogue is closed in a few months. Every possibility of a constructive valorization of differences fades, and the contradiction politics turns into a torturous affair of expulsion, defection, topped off by the appropriation of weapons and reciprocal exchanges of accusations. So the brigades are extremely angry with Ferranda and Morucci, which is not great for them because the BR have not finished their violence. In the two weeks from March 15th to the 30th, they carried out five actions, including two killings and three woundings. They shot a fiat manager named Giuliano Farina in Turin. In Trapani, a police marshal named Mario Majorana was shot with a shotgun blast in the back, with the attack claimed by the BR, although the attribution has been disputed. And just a few days later, an industrialist named Attilio Duta is driving his car in Cuneo when he's mowed down by the BR. In Naples, the BR maim a custodian, and then in Rome, building contractor Italo Schettini is killed. That last murder of Schettini, a guy pegged by the radical left to be a corrupt figure involved in shady housing practices, is killed by Morucci and Ferranda's former column, so they must have felt a bit of pressure based on that. Meanwhile, on March 17th, Ricardo Dura is arrested, if you recall. I mentioned that in a previous episode. So everyone's a little bit concerned, even if Dura gets released shortly thereafter. He had been the one who killed Rosa, the trade unionist, and his arrest was 
this was kind of a fluke, but it was a very serious thing for the organization. And it felt almost like a prelude to the wave of 20 arrests that came down on the area of Autonomia on April 7th, just weeks later. In April, the brigade's wound administrative secretary of the Dece, the uh, Democristiani, Giancarlo Danino in Genoa, and shortly thereafter in Turin, they hit RAI journalist Franco Piccinelli. This is followed again in Genoa with the wounding of Giuseppe Bonzani, the plant manager at Ensaldo, and then a few days later they hit a Christian Democrat office in the heart of Rome. That action, initiated at 9 a.m., is a big flex involving a fire group storming the premises with guns and explosives, tying up the employees and bosses, wrecking shop and writing slogans on the walls. Someone who heard some shots called the cops, and when they showed up, the brigadists strafed them with machine gun fire. In the melee, Deputy Brigadier Antonio Mia is electrocuted through his car radio, while Agent Piero Olano is hit and dies in the hospital later. But the geometric power of the brigades is punctured on the night of May 18th when Enrico Fancy is arrested along with 16 other leftists in what was known as the Genoese Blitz, an operation carried out under the guidance of General Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa. The Blitz was sort of part of the April 7th crackdown and apprehended one of the brigade's leading assaulters. However, Fenzi didn't show up and say, I'm a member of the brigades and I declare myself a political prisoner. He actually pled innocent to any charges, and they didn't know precisely what his role was and maybe couldn't prove that he was a brigadist at all. They could really only speculate and hold him for now. A scholar, Fenzi's one of the most interesting brigadists for his autobiographical chronicle filled with regret, scorn, and candor. Suffice it to say that those months, from January 24th to May 18th, were the dumbest and most depressing of my life, he writes of the period between Rosa's murder and his arrest. The harsh searches, of course, and the suddenly more oppressive surveillance, and the rumors of the imminent arrest, and the fears, and sleeping outside in the house of friends for two or three nights, perhaps with the excuse of violent quarrels with Isabella, and the quarrels which, on the other hand, there really were, because by now I was behaving like a kind of blinded kamikaze, and she was opposing the reasons for a less closed, less hallucinated political commitment, and she wanted at all costs that son that I had denied her. For Ferranda and Morucci, the safety of their new anonymity and guest house would not last long either. Ten days after Fenzi's arrest, Tuesday, May 29th, they're in their room, Conforto, the landlady is in hers, and Sandro Narvali, counterterrorism marshal, says that the police knew the brigadists lived in the building, but didn't know which room. We had completely opened all the doors to the other floors of the building one by one. The building was completely surrounded by agents of the flying squad. There were only four of us in the counterterrorism section, our colleagues at least 200. It was their operation. In short, 
They had known with a good approximation that Morucci and Ferranda lived in that street and at that civic number, but we didn't know in which apartment. So we split our plans and started checking all together house to house. The doorbell rings, Conforto opens the door a little bit, and a machine gun is the first thing that comes through. Ferranda recalls, quote, They asked me, documents, who are you? I handed him my fake ID. Who do you think you're kidding? One said immediately, slapping me twice. I fell to the ground. Valerio tried to defend me. Five or six were on him immediately. I shouted at him, stand still. Valerio stopped. The couple spend a night in jail and are transferred to the prison the next day. During the transfer, there's a huge press scrum and they're trying to shield their faces from the journalists. And this is how the Red Brigades and family members find out that these two are going to jail. The arrest was like a death, Ferranda later commented. A cycle of my life had been brutally closed. Nothing would now go back to the way it was before. No more fear, no more love, no more darkness of the evening, warm and rarefied in that hint of summer. A feeling of emptiness or stage fiction gripped me. What I feared had happened. My image had crystallized, and now I could only repeat all the stereotypes linked to the strong image of a real Red Brigade's member. In the first place, the need not to expose the flank to the attacks of the Red Brigades, which I knew wanted my skin, the need not to expose my side to the pressures of the state that I knew wanted my freedom of thought and the information in my possession. The only refuge was a steady, aggressive, unequivocal mode of behavior. So, Adriana is rebellious in jail, taking beatings for protests carried out on others' behalf. Murucci is sociable and makes friends with the other inmates. And in June, they finally put out a statement about why they left the Red Brigades. The statement is published in Loto Continua. So, it's very public on the left. And in the words of the analysis book, Brigate Rosse un diario politico riflessioni sull'assalto al cielo. Quote, the document stated that what had initially been the strong point of the Red Brigades, namely the organizational capacity, the strategic nature, which had allowed the armed struggle to take off and to overcome armed spontaneism, was revealed in the light of the new contacts a breaking factor. The political and organizational rigidity of the Red Brigades, all aimed at clashing with the state, had created a fracture with the movement and with the immediate needs of the proletariat. Here, the strategic part is associated with the political line, and especially with Renato Curcio's strategic front, while the political and organizational rigidity will reference Moretti's logistics front. You'll note that the movementists sort of combine the two a little bit, sort of adding that the political line had established very good strategy with the strategic front of Renato Curcio, but then the brigades kind of morphed that strategy into a kind of a nightmare um, of a different breed. And so what had been its strength turned into its biggest weakness as the brigades sort of severed its relationship to the movement. Morucci and Ferranda state that, quote, the enormous power deployed in Viafani when Moro was kidnapped would either need to be disposed of or converted, quote, 
into actions which, regardless of the number of deaths, would bring this power back into the daily struggle of the proletariat. So they're not arguing for limited violence, as Gallinari implied. In fact, they're arguing for the transmission of the moral kidnapping into an unstoppable wave of force intervening in the daily lives of the proletariat through myriad violent acts. They say that, through, quote, a rigid and bureaucratic apparatus, the violence had stalled out, while, quote, an increase in the conflict throughout the territory and therefore also in the proletarian neighborhoods was imposed on the MPRO, certainly based not on a real strengthening of the fighting structures and political roots, but on the subjective choice to determine it. Now, remember that the MPRO is another one of their acronyms that they develop, uh, especially in the 1978 uh, strategic document, uh, strategic resolution. And in the document, they say that the MPRO is basically the movement, the armed proletarian revolutionary movement. Um, and so they effectively want to lead the MPRO to make the movement into what they want it to be. And Morucci is saying that this is actually just alienating the brigades from the movement itself. So my reading of this is basically that Morucci and Faranda thought that the Red Brigades were sloughing off the majority of violence and calling on autonomia to do it while taking up this kind of organizationalist perch above the fray that supposedly took part in it only through the most ultimate forms of revolutionary attack that were in reality too few and far between. This, of course, is kind of a crazy position to take, but whatever, I guess. Recalling the Red Brigade's response, Gallinari states in his own autobiography, quote, In the summer, after a complicated coming and going of messages to and from prison, the lapidary sentence issued by the fellow inmates arrives against the two refugees. Summer is the season of mosquitoes. It's actually pretty weird that Gallinari calls this statement lapidary, because aside from the sinister approach, Curcio says that he and the other historic nucleus members behind bars hadn't necessarily wanted to issue a sentence against their own comrades. Quote, I have an unpleasant memory of it, not so much for the particularly harsh text, but for the political mechanism it triggered, he said in his book Aviso Aperto. We wrote that document, which was even sent to Ansa at the urging of external comrades. But some time later, we learned that they were not satisfied and did not like the tone that we used because, in reality, they still hoped to be able to mediate with the two dissidents. In short, first they asked us for an intervention, and then they criticized it. Personally, I felt played. So, the text of the document is really quite terrible. I'll read a bit here. And... As annoying as mosquitoes, come the stings of a gang of gentlemen and provocateurs who, in the service of the imperialist counter-revolution, buzz around the guerrillas with the ambitious intention of returning the variables gone mad into the hands of the bourgeoisie. They are not the first, they will not be the last. Every revolution inevitably draws to its fringes mud and waste of all kinds. Anyway, whatever. The brigades on the outside wanted the statement. Those on the inside drew up some very weird statement. Those on the outside said that it wasn't very good and was actually too uh, violent, which, 
Yeah, it wasn't very good, and it was too violent. And those on the inside resented that, but those who had been on the outside then said it was all sort of masterful. That was sort of a sideshow, though, for what the historic nucleus was really preparing. I mentioned earlier that Morucci's letter to the historic nucleus smuggled into the secret prison in the heel of a shoe had contributed to the discourses taking place over the strategy of the organization. Well, that discourse really sets off in spring 1979 with disputes among the prisoners in Asinara. Curcio writes a text called Little Red Riding Hood. Franceschini writes a response with some others. The group argues some more. And this actually picked up their spirits. Curcio explained, Our analysis was either we create a broader debate today without jealousies and hegemonic ambitions, and we manage to build the conditions for an effective unitary political alignment despite the diversity of approaches, or our presence will remain confined to the military level and will be smashed. Lots of supportive documents contribute to 10 simple theses, by summer, that's grown to 20 theses. And by September, you've got 100 pages. This is the development of what was then called the documentone. Curcio later relates, quote, I was of the opinion that the political weakness of the Red Brigades was a decisive obstacle to that leap in quality, which by now was indispensable to make through new initiatives. We had to take on a greater political organizational responsibility towards all the different formations of armed struggle present in Italy and also the discussion to broader sections of the extreme left, not just the clandestine and militarized one. But what does it mean to reach out to the movement beyond the armed struggle? The prisoners realized that they had what they had dubbed the MPRO wasn't substantial enough to move into a civil war phase that was now presenting itself. So they sort of posited that it was time to take the masses to the civil war rather than relying on the autonomists and the social movements. To do this, the brigades would have to directly intervene in accomplishing the immediate goals of the masses. So again, we have the brigades as these sort of heroic, vigilante, mythical types, not unlike Robin Hood or the bandits of the 19th century. The brigades were no longer missionaries of the gun. They were trying to use armed struggle to give direct aid to the masses in their struggles, thus escalating the struggle into a civil war. Now, the authors of Brigate Rosse Un Diario Politico really carved this thesis up. Quote, This thesis was wrong, as we have already said, repeated and analyzed from time to time, because it was based on an incorrect analysis of social contradictions and, above all, their level of development, as it once again overestimated the armed movement compared to reality and flattened the class on positions of radical antagonism, as well as for its internal logic, because even if the real situation had corresponded to the hypothesized one, it would still have been wrong to think of a war over increasing wages. Personally, I think the most important part of this commentary is that of the flattening of the class. The brigades weren't thinking clearly about the proletariat and the subjectivity of the working class because they had become an ossified Stalinist structure whose leading tendency was to cast everything in a Manichaean light of good and evil while ignoring the basic practical contradictions on the ground. 
Thus, their effort to make this struggle more practical was even more isolating and idealistic for its rejection of a clear analysis of social conditions. Coincidentally, the Documentone is published on the same day as the historic nucleus participates in a prison revolt. I've talked before a bit about the special prison system where conditions were very isolating and difficult. Well, on October 2nd at 7 p.m., some 50 inmates tie up a guard in a big room and open the cells of the maximum security block. This frees the political prisoners, including the brigades, uh, in the ensuing struggle, guards are hit by furniture while inmates throw the natural gas canisters from the stoves out into the halls. And from all over the island of Sardinia, cops are sent to converge and put down the rebellion at Asinara. The fight is eventually won by the police, but the political prisoners get their goal, transfer out of Asinara. When Curcio and others get to another prison in Florence, they get a piece of cigarette paper smuggled in with two lines of small writing. It's from the brigades outside and says simply, We don't quite know where the error is, but there is definitely an error in your theses. The documentone had been utterly rejected by the brigadists outside, adding another rift to the already troubled relationship between them and the prisoners. And what an insult it might have felt to have received this response to a hundred-page document that was crafted through this meticulous and difficult process of argumentation and discourse on a little thin piece of cigarette paper with only two lines, refusing to address any point made other than there was some error somewhere. So this, <laughs> this deepened the rift that had been present since uh, the killing of Coco um, in 1976, uh, persisted through the Moro um, kidnapping and the call to draft the Strategic Revolution, Resolution in 1978, and even deepened with uh, Morucci's claims that were sent into the prison and Ferranda's resistance in 1979. So the rift between those in prison and those outside under Moretti's leadership is, uh, I would say, probably irreconcilable at this point. In the meantime, the brigade's attacks have been getting ever more ferocious. In Genoa, a professor and regional Christian Democrat counselor is shot in the legs while administering exams to his students. In Rome, recently resigned Carabinieri Lieutenant Antonio Varisco is gunned down. In Turin, Fiat manager Cesare Varetto is shot in the legs while shopping with his family. They were actually at a haberdashery. I just want to say that because I like the word. In Rome, again... A cop in the San Lorenzo neighborhood is gunned down under his girlfriend's apartment. And a little while later, one of his colleagues in the Centocelle neighborhood is shot dead in an ambush. In the midst of the increasing bloodshed, the brigades suffer another considerable setback. On September 24th, Gallinari meets with other members of his column. Mario Moretti is returning from a trip to Lebanon, where he received a bevy of weapons from Palestinian militants and was sailing back to Italy in a skiff. 
The brigades had to unload the weapons and distribute them, and for this, they needed cars. The idea was to switch some plates on the cars to get ready for the drop. Gallinari's supposed to be the lookout. It's the dead of night, but they can't get the screws undone. And they're in sort of this bad location where people might see them. Gallinari goes back to replace the license plate himself, and he explains, quote, When I hear the siren, the police car is already on me. On those occasions, the reaction is spontaneous. Running in itself would be useless. Trying to stay covered by the car whose license plate I'm working on, I draw my pistol and start shooting. Meanwhile, I look around and try to think. The police car is in front of me, and it blocks my access to a secondary road that I would like to use to escape, because it seems narrow and twisted. So, I shoot at the car to force it to move and give me the green light. I finish my magazine and try to extract the second one from my waistband of the trousers, and there, the light goes out. He wakes up in a hospital bed, not knowing how long he's been out. The doctor asks, are you left-handed? He is. Now I understand, the doctor replies. You're hit in the head and suffered a large-scale lacero-contusive and hemorrhagic outbreak. I don't know what that is. We had to extract a lot of matter from you. We took it for granted that the quantity was such as to believe that all cognitive quality and reasoning were damaged without the possibility of recovering them. Being left-handed, your brain parts are reversed. So not only was Gallinari arrested, he had suffered massive brain damage from serious injuries related to the shootout with police while switching license plates. But, like usual, the brigade's downward spiral is also an upward spiral depending on how it's approached. Moretti's pickup had been successful. He said of his trip, taken with Dura, quote, we set sail from Ancona for Cyprus, where we waited for the appointment anchored in a wonderful marina, but it wasn't a holiday. We had a bit of a hipster look, unkempt beards, Spartan schedules, and life, and it worked. On the agreed day, we met off the coast of Tripoli in Lebanon and transferred the weapons that had been packed in jute bags from one boat to another. The Palestinians were surprised that we preferred to load at sea because... At that moment, they had control of part of the city. But our sailing boat, clearly defenseless, they looked at it with curiosity from a fully armed pilot boat. Once filled, it had so much explosive on board that if a single bullet had hit us, the bang would have been heard throughout Lebanon. Once the load was done, we saluted them with a clenched fist, and they responded by raising their rifles high. Our tiny sloop returned to Italy after a 1,500-mile sea crossing done in one go. I mean, honestly, when Moretti says that it's a little skiff, he's kind of lying. And he lies about quite a few things. Um, it was really a single-masted 12-meter 16-tonner uh, called the Papago that they had bought from an irregular militant. And the weapons that they got included machine guns, rifles, grenades, anti-tank weapons, explosive fuses, so on. With Gallinari in the can, Vincenzo, Guagliardo, and Nadia Ponti steal a Fiat 238, switch the plates in Mestre outside of Venice, and hide it in the garage. 
Guagliardo surveils the area of the port to find the best approach for the vessel, and on September 8th, they bring in the Papago, transfer weapons to a smaller boat, and dock the Papago. The guns are then transferred to the van and then to another garage owned by a member, the son of a cop. From there, they split up the weapons and transfer them throughout Italy in tranches every week or two. According to a police report itemized in the book Il Brigatista e l'Operaio by Giovanni Bianconi, it involved to the Turin column four Sterling machine guns with eight magazines, ten bombs, three packs of plastic, three detonators, 500 long nine-caliber bullets. For the Turin column, one machine gun with two belts, a rifle with stun gun, FAL, with two magazines, and 500 bullets, four sterling with eight magazines, ten bombs, two Energia bombs, two anti-personnel bombs, six packs of plastic, 500 bullets, nine millimeters long, 207.62 caliber bullets. To the Genoa column, two FAL rifles, a machine gun with two belts and 160 rounds, eight sterling with 16 magazines, 16 bombs, four Energia bombs, four anti-personnel bombs, eight plastic packs, four detonators, 500 long 9mm bullets, and 587 bullets. Roman Column gets two FAL rifles with four magazines, eight Sterling machine guns with 16 magazines, 13 bombs, four Energia bombs, four anti-personnel bombs, four packs of plastic, four detonators, 727.62 bullets, 160 bullets for Cala, 709 long bullets. Sardinian column, now this is Sardinian column is a thing, three sterling with six magazines, a rocket launcher with two ribbons and 160 shots, five bombs, some plastic with two detonators, 259 long bullets. So the storage of the Sardinian column gets two missiles, a rocket launcher, 10 sterling machine guns, three anti-tank grenades, 240 plastic packs, a complete pack of detonators, 12 bombs, 709 millimeter long bullets. The new Venetian column that they're just now setting up, that's going to get three sterling machine guns with six magazines, an FAL rifle with two magazines, six bombs, three detonators, 200 bullets, and nine of nine millimeter caliber. Now the Venetian column is gonna deposit also some weapons for later use, including four sterling machine guns with eight magazines, six bombs, two packages of plastic, 300 bullets, nine millimeter long. And the Milanese column gets four sterling machine guns with eight magazines, six missiles, two plastic packs, two detonators, six bombs, 250 bullets, nine millimeters long. And for the front of the prisons, they get 20 packages of plastic. And that's not even counting the extra weapons that they're able to go stash in a cave. So <laughs> with, with this massive cache of bullets, the brigades can literally wage a civil war. So at the time, at the same time as the group is virtually bleeding out, it's just gotten a major transfusion of weapons from the Middle East, but it's really only the illusion of power. According to Antonio Savasta, who will loom large over the remainder of the brigade's years, 
The relationship between the PLO and the BR had been developed through a center based in France whose contact was named Louis at a phone number known only to Gualiardo, Dura, and Braghetti. There's a lot of questions about this, and I'll get into it in a separate episode that kind of gets more into the statements and claims regarding their relationship to the PLO, the ETA, the IRA, and so forth. But for now, we're going to leave it an open question. In late November, the tough young southerner Ricardo Dura, who's out of jail now, and his comrade Luigi Baestrocchi assassinate Marshal Vittorio Battalini and Carabinieri Mario Tosa while they're drinking coffee in a bar in San Pier d'Arena, Genoa. In Milan, towards the end of the year, the Brigate Rosse shoot two nurses at the polyclinic, Ferdinando Malatera and Lino Manfredi, in the legs. And then, early in 1980, back in Genoa, Dura and Baistrochi strike again, carrying out a military-style attack on a Carabinieri car, killing Lieutenant Colonel Emanuele Tutobene and Antonio Casu, the driver. So this is 1980 now, and a new season of death has opened for the Red Brigades. It's really the beginning of the end for the Moretti phase, and the beginning of an ever bloodier stage in the Brigade's combat against the state. On February 12th, the Roman column murders the vice president of the Superior Council of the Judiciary, Vittorio Bachelet, in the hallway at Sapienza University after his lecture on public economic law. These brazen attacks are growing more intense with every year, and then the cops make a big break. In Turin, they catch two leading brigadists, Rocco Micheletto and Patrizio Pecci. A southerner from Puglia, Micheletto had been a Communist Party official at Fiat involved in the big occupation of 1973. He'd helped reconstruct the Genoa column for Moretti after the arrest of Curcio, bringing Ricardo Dura on board before going back to Turin and participating in the Turin column. Pecci had contributed to the revolt at San Benedetto del Tronto in the Marche with Lota Continua before driving before drifting into the armed struggle and eventually joining the brigades around 1976. The two were really critical members of Moretti's rebuilt Brigate Rosse, but more than that, one of them wants to talk with Dalla Chiesa himself. In the profound and historical moment that ensued, Patrizio Pecci became the first pentito of the Red Brigades and with his testimony helped break the organization in the form that it had existed up until that moment. So, at the beginning of 1980, the number of crucial BR members involved in Moretti's brigades who are either dead or in jail is increasing. In the Genoa column, Enrico Fancy was in jail for an uncertain amount of time, and Dura had been arrested but then released, in what still frightened the organization. In Rome, the movementist faction of the brigades had abandoned ship, only to be arrested shortly thereafter. In Milan, 
the raid at Monte Nevoso toward the end of 1978 had snatched up Nadia Montovani, Franco Bonisoli, and leading member Moretti's close collaborator, Lauro Azzolini. For the Turin column, Cristoforo Pianconi had been shot and arrested in 1978, and now Micheletto was in jail with his comrade Pecci, about to become the first turncoat. Just like we saw with the Nuclei Armati Proletari, the high-profile busts and major arrests did major damage to the logistical operations of the organization, but it also inflamed their fighting spirit. The brigades are now firing in all directions, and nobody was safe. It started with the fascists, then to the Gaullists, then moved to the Christian Democrats, and in turn the communists, and now they had put out a death sentence against their own former members. The bloody disarticulation of the Moretti system was in effect, with the documentone in play, the movementists split, and the relationship between the historic nucleus and the leadership outside constantly eroding. Soon, Moretti himself would have to contend with the vengeance machine that he had created as his own organization turns against him in the drive to give vent to its spiraling trauma and rage. But for more on that, you'll have to check back later. For now, Thanks very much for listening to this episode. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod.